Uh, So again, today I'll be covering the topic of God's decree. Many of you may feel that this is a topic that is commonly discussed among Reformed circles or Calvinistic circles, things about God's decree, uh, things about predestination and election, and God uh, uh, foreordaining all that is to come to pass. But it's actually my experience that although many enjoy this topic, very few people place it in its proper place in the overall system of theology. Many discussions that are had regarding the decree of God are often very unhelpful unless they are careful in defining the terms and are careful to be consistent with the nature of God as described in the Bible. Now I want to start off by first defining what we mean by God's decree. First of all, a decree is understood to be an official order issued by an authority. A decree, an order. What may come to mind is, uh, for example, a a decree that comes from a court decision. So an example is a court order that officially makes someone the legal guardian of a child who may have lost their biological parents. This order or this decree is something that is officiated by a legal authority. Now, in theology, when we speak of God's decree, we're talking about a decision or a predetermination of what God has authorized to happen. With that in mind, we must also remember that whatsoever God decrees or what he determines should come to pass is as permanent as he is. Therefore, when I talk about God's decree, in a lot of ways, I'm essentially talking about the very nature of God. I spoke about the nature of God in my previous class, and if you missed it, you can, you can catch it in the webpage, in our church's webpage. Um, it was on God and the Trinity. But again, the topic of God's decree is essentially about who God is and how he decrees. That's pretty much what we're talking about. God's decree is God's will and counsel, which he then executes in creation. So how should we treat his decree? Well, we should treat his decree as we would any of his other attributes. What God determined would come to pass is not only a plan, but it is his very will, which is the essence of who God is. Therefore, just as God is love, God is also one with his will. We also discussed previously the incomprehensibility of God, which means that God's decree at some level, is also incomprehensible. That doesn't mean that it's unknowable. It simply means that uh, we cannot know it fully at every level. Uh, Therefore, we ought to uh, remember that there is some divine mystery in the will or in the decree of God. On a more practical note, a Christian is one who is able to cope with life's pains and life's tragedies, being that he understands that according to the doctrine of God's decree, there isn't anything that happens in existence that does not serve a purpose, even if if the purpose is God's good pleasure. In other words, when you suffer, when you're going through trial, none of that is in vain. There's never been a vain moment. Everything is purposeful. Everything was part of God's decree. Ephesians 1, 5b, 
uh, reading from the King James Version, uh, you see where it says, according to the good pleasure of his will. So again, uh, everything is purposeful, even if it simply means that it's for the good pleasure of God's will. Nothing ever slips from God's plan. Not even evil slips from God's plan. On the contrary, one of the most devastating ideas that could ever enter into our imagination would be the idea that things could happen apart from God's eternal decree in which God himself had no control over. God forbid, that would be devastating. Yet we know that that is not the God that's revealed in Scripture. The God that's revealed in Scripture decrees everything, and everything that happens is because he decreed it. Now, specifically in our confession, we see that the English reformers placed this doctrine as a chapter after the chapter of the Holy Scriptures and after the chapter of the doctrine of God. In that order, it's number three. And this order makes sense, being that the Holy Scripture is where our doctrines stem from, and then it moves us into chapter two um, as it explains the God that, that is revealed in Scripture, and then we get to chapter three, which is God's decree. Okay? And everything else in our confession that follows after God's decree, chapter three, pretty much addresses all that God decrees in specific categories in creation. So it makes sense that this topic is found in chapter 3, in that order. When the Westminster divines began formulating the Westminster Confession in 1643, it was only 24 years later after the Synod of Dort, which met to address the Arminian controversy. The Synod of Dort was a convention held in order to settle a controversy in the Dutch churches initiated by the rise of Arminianism or Pelagianism or semi-Pelagianism that came from the Remonstrants. They They met in the city of Dort as a national assembly of the Dutch Reformed Church to which other Reformed churches were invited to as well. This was a big assembly. And being that they couldn't reconcile Arminianism by the way, for those of you who are not familiar with Arminian theology, the, the, the heart of it is simply this, that God, uh, actually, let me, let me backtrack, that man at some level has uh, the ability to respond to God, the ability to cooperate with God, apart from God's decree, that he's able to do things autonomously, without the need on uh, God decreeing this to come to pass. Anyway, uh, being that they couldn't reconcile that idea with the word of God, they unanimously rejected that idea. And they felt, however, that a mere rejection wasn't even sufficient. And why wasn't this stuff sufficient? Because man has the tendency, by nature, to want to feel independent from God. They want to have control. That's part of man's nature. And the Westminster divines, the, the uh, English particular Baptists, along with the rest of the Reformed tradition, understood that the scriptures teach that God is completely sovereign and everything that ever happens only happens because God has decreed it to happen. Good. <clears throat> this is what made a clear statement of God's decree to be important 
And even today, we can see its importance as we are surrounded today by many false views. For example, the false view of open theism or Pelagianism and other distortions of the biblical understanding of God's decree. The English particular Baptists, who self-identified as part, part of that Puritan Reformed movement, adopted this Reformed view of the divine decree, which is what we have here before us in, in our confession. So, with that sort of background, let's, let's consider what it says in, in the confession. Look at uh, paragraph 1. Again, we're in chapter 3, paragraph 1. Uh, can I get a volunteer to read the whole of paragraph 1? Thank you. God has decreed all things that occur, and this he has done in himself from all eternity by the perfectly wise and holy counsel of his own will, freely and unchangeably. Yet he has done this in such a way that God is neither the author of sin, nor does he share with anyone in sinning, nor does this violate the will of the creature, nor is the free working or contingency of second causes taken away, but rather established. In all this, God's wisdom is displayed in directly all things, as is his power and faithfulness in accomplishing his degree. Thank you. <clears throat> now, as I said in my last class, <clears throat> most of these chapters in the confession deal with subjects that could potentially be a series in and of itself, so uh, I'm not going to be able to cover every single point but I am going to pull out uh, some key points that I think are worth uh, discussing in the time that we have. Starting with paragraph one, we get some <clears throat> pretty good points. <clears throat> Excuse me. Uh, first of all, we see from the first sentence that God's decree is eternal. From all eternity, God decreed everything that occurs. As I mentioned before, we should treat his decree as, if we, as we would any other uh, divine attribute. What God determined would come to pass is not only a plan, but it's his very will, which is the essence of who God is. And it is with this understanding that we also confess that God's decree is eternal, which again, as I mentioned before, uh, simply means that God's decree is actually part of the essence of who God is. Look, at me, look with me at uh, 2 Timothy 1 verse 9. It says, who saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus, and this is the key part here, before the ages began. The, the NASB uses the phrase, from all eternity, which I think is a better uh, rendering. This shows us that his decree, if it is eternal, means that it is also of the essence of God. A simple way to put it is that God's decree is God. So when we're talking about the plan or the decree of God, we're speaking about God himself. Secondly, we see in the same sentence that the, the eternal decree covers everything that ever comes to pass. His decree is one that encompasses every moment and action you can think of. And it's still currently unfolding, even as I speak. It's safe to say that God had decreed that you would be here right now, in the present, hearing me talk, yep. as painful as that, that may be. 
And we know this with certainty because it is unfolding this very second. God decrees all that comes to pass and whatsoever does not come to pass is also the will of God and therefore it has been eternally decreed. This includes everything that is good and wonderful, but also everything that seems to be not so good. Uh, we see, we see the, the other, sort of the darker side of it in Isaiah 45, uh, verse 7. Can someone, can someone read this? So here we see that nothing happens unless God's, God decrees it to happen, even calamity. Or what you see here, I form light, I create darkness, I make well-being, and I create calamity. <clears throat> and this is all according to the freedom and wisdom of God. And thirdly, with that said, the confession then states in the second sentence that his decree is perfectly wise and holy. Now, considering the fact that his decree is of his essence, it would make logical sense that his decree is perfectly wise and holy because it is who God is. It is a profound truth to consider if you really think about it, that God's decree is perfectly wise. Now, think about the implications of the fact that God's decree is perfectly wise. This means that everything that happens to you or everything that comes to pass from down to the very second of it, is actually the very best possible scenario. Isn't that interesting? That every single thing that happens, even the moments where you're like, man, I wish I would have not done that, or I wish that would have not happened to me. Because God's decree is wise and holy, every single possible scenario is the best possible scenario. Uh, excuse me, let me rephrase that. Every single thing that happens to you is the best possible scenario down to the very second. This means that all which God is decreeing, everything that is happening, is the wisest way for it to happen when you consider the uh, full scope of all of creation history. Our minds can't really even fathom the fullness of that because we're creatures that are always filled with regrets and always filled with doubts. Yet God has it all in the palm of his anthropomorphic hand. And all of it is perfectly wise. And this is why his decree is holy. I got a question. Uh, to add to what you're saying, it says in your book were written every one of them the days that were born for me when as yet there was none of them. Amen. So we're actors. We're just actors. It has already been written. Yes. And I'm not saying we should go out and sin. That's not what I'm saying. But right. whatever happens, even if we get overwhelmed, it's part of the script. Yeah. Amen. 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 Uh, I want to look at some, some passages here. Psalm 145, 17. Uh, it says, The Lord is righteous in all his ways. Psalm 104, 24. O Lord, how manifold are your works. In wisdom have you made them all. The earth is full of your creatures. So, some good, profound truth. Uh, moving on, we read in the confession towards the end of the second sentence that God's decree is free and unchangeable. What does it mean that his decree is free? 
What this means is that the Lord decrees as he pleases without any constraints or suggestions or even results from events that are from his creation or anything outside of his essential self. God does not wait on points or even events in history to then begin a new decree. He doesn't look at creation and things that happen in creation. He goes, oh man, that's not good. Let me go and decree something new. He does not do that. God's decree is free. Psalm 115.3. Our God is in the heavens, and he does all that he pleases. Numbers 23.19. God is not man, that he should lie, or a son of man, that he should change his mind. We also see that his decree is unchangeable. It doesn't change. And since God is immutable, makes sense. It follows that his eternal decree is also immutable. This means that it never changes, and what he decrees will not be altered, not even in the slightest way. You see this in Isaiah 46, 9 through 10. Can someone read that passage, the top one? Remember the former things of old, for I am God, and there is no other. I am God, and there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning, from ancient times, things not yet done, saying, my counsel shall stand, and I will accomplish all my purpose. Hmm. You see there, declaring the end from the beginning, and from ancient times, things not yet done. And he says, my counsel shall stand, and I will accomplish all my purposes. Hebrews six seventeen. Can I get someone to read that? see that part there that I underline, the unchangeable character of his purpose. It's unchangeable. Okay, moving along. The, The confession then goes on to explain the common misconceptions that usually follow when people try to reconcile God's decree and the existence of sin, right? The question asked most often is that if sin exists, Was God not then the author of it? And the confession answers this by stating in the third sentence that even though God decrees all things that comes to pass, he does so in such a way that he is neither the author of sin nor has fellowship with any in their sin. The idea is that there is a difference between God decreeing people to break God's law in time and space, which is what sin is, and God actually being the immediate agent of the cause in the transgression. And if you've struggled with this tension of God decreeing all things and God still having his hands clean, you aren't alone. I understand. Uh, In fact, this was a complicated thing among theologians even in recent times as they would try to interpret historically how these 17th century reformers understood these concepts. I'm uh, I'm thinking specifically of the writings of Alexander Schweitzer. He was a German theologian who wrote 
the Protestant central dogmas in their development within the Reformed Church. Now, <clears throat> Richard Muller, uh, in his book, Divine Will and Human Choice, talks about the problem that many theologians have had in interpreting those Reformed positions. Schweitzer interpreted the Reformers as having a very deterministic view of the divine will of God, so much so, check this out, that he understood them to be saying that the secondary causality was so subsumed or so absorbed under God's primary causality as to leave God the only genuine actor or mover. To put it in simpler terms, it was to say, picture this, picture the man who picks up a gun and murders the innocent person, right? What they thought the reformers were saying was that the man who picks up the gun and murders the innocent person actually isn't the real immediate cause. Rather, it was God who was the real actor or mover in that situation. It was basically saying that God was the killer in that type of scenario. Uh, because if all things flow from his divine decree, then essentially he's guilty of all these horrific things that we see happen in our, in our planet. <laughs> Obviously, that's, that's not correct. But this, was, this is often how many... Uh, historians, especially in, in recent uh, centuries, have interpreted the reformers of, of, of believing, and this is not true. That was a very deterministic interpretation of the divine will, which is not accurate to what the reformers believed, and in a lot of ways ruined the perception of reform scholasticism. But also, it ruins uh, how they view Calvin and many others who I think rightly understood the balance between what goes on here and what God ordains. Uh, the confession, I think, expresses this balance well in stating that God decrees, but he does so in such a way that he's neither the author of sin, nor does he have fellowship with anyone in their sin. And yet, I don't think it's good just because it's balanced. Um, I, I actually think that it is good because this is the way the Bible balances this concept, right? We see these boundaries clearly shown in Scripture. For example, Psalm 92.15, it says, To declare that the Lord is upright, he is my rock, and there is no unrighteousness in him. James 1.13.14 says, Let no one say when he's tempted... I'm being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he's lured and enticed by his own desires. And 1 John 1.5 says, This is the message we have heard from him and proclaim to you, that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. Amen. Okay, moving along. Um, I'm going to summarize the final parts of paragraph one just for the sake of time. Uh, can someone read uh, that part? Uh, let's see. Can someone begin where it says, nor? Volunteer, thank you, Debbie.
and all this, God's wisdom is displayed in directing all things as is his power and faithfulness in accomplishing his decree. Amen. Amen. So, uh, quickly, I'll point out that in seeing that God's decree uh, does not violate the will of the creature, uh, the confession... The confession isn't, by any means, affirming absolute freedom of the will. That's not what it's saying. It, it does recognize the bondage of the will, the slavery of the will to sin, and you see that in further chapters. Uh, so it's not affirming an absolute freedom of the will. Uh, however, the confession is simply making the point that in God decreeing all things that comes to pass... He isn't violating any moral responsibility or changing the design of mankind as a free moral agent who will be held responsible for their moral decisions. In other words, just because, it, just because it's in God's overall plan doesn't mean that you aren't responsible of your own sin. God decrees in such a way that uh, doesn't violate responsibility moral responsibility. And this is the reason why many are sent to hell in eternal damnation. They're paying for their own actions. And so God is, is not violating that uh, in any sense. And then finally, the paragraph ends well, I think, by stating that in this decree, God's wisdom is displayed in directing all things, and his power and faithfulness are demonstrated in accomplishing his decree. So the, the beauty of his decree is to see how all of this unfolds and not one part of his decree uh, goes without being fulfilled. Everything gets fulfilled, and I think that's, that's part of the beauty of it. And it's going to be amazing to see uh, in the final consummation of all things to look back and see uh, how everything that God had ordained to come to pass actually came to pass uh, down to the very second of it. And so I think that's part of the beauty of, uh, of what we get from this doctrine of God's decree. Okay, let's uh, move along to paragraph two. Can someone read paragraph two? Thank you. Um, <clears throat> and this is essentially stating that his decrees are unconditional. If you remember from some past uh, Sunday school lessons, uh, we've spoken about this um, multiple times. Uh, and even, uh, even earlier in my teaching today, I mentioned about the Arminian controversy uh, when the remonstrance uh, carried the Arminian belief that election was conditional, that God making things happen, God choosing things, specifically people, was conditional. Uh, and their thoughts, the way that they formulated this idea was that they believed that what God did in electing specific people was that he, he looked through the uh, lens of time Right? He looked into the future of each individual, and he saw who would be faithful. And those who he saw would eventually be faithful, he stamped them with a 
metaphorical uh, uh, seal, right? Saying this is an elect person. This is a person who I am sealing as elect because I can look through uh, the lens of time and see that in the future they're going to be faithful. That was rejected by the reformers, that idea that his election, his decisions were based on his creatures uh, and something outside of himself. And this wasn't something that he determined within himself. But again, the reformers, as I, as I mentioned before, in the Senate of Dort, they rejected that idea. And again, this was to say that the Bible teaches that anything that God decrees is not in any way based on foreseeing anything in the future. Many taught that God preordains or elects on the basis of seeing into the future, making his decisions based on that. Yet, God, the, yet the scriptures show us that this is a false idea. Look what it says in Isaiah 14, 24 through 27. Can I get a volunteer to read that? A little bit more, if you don't mind finishing that up. This is the purpose that is purpose. Concerning the whole earth, and this is the heart, the hand that is stretched out over all the nations, for the Lord of hosts is purpose, and who will, who will know it? His hand is stretched out, and who will turn it back? Thank you, brother. Appreciate that. So, again, uh, key verses there. For the Lord of hosts has purposed, and who will annul it? His hand is stretched out, and who will turn it back? <clears throat> uh, going even further, uh, I think, uh, where it says, The Lord of hosts has sworn, as I have planned, so it shall be. And as I have purposed, so it shall stand. <clears throat> okay, moving along, because... Uh, we're kind of running out of time here. Uh, looking at paragraph three, can someone read paragraph three? By the decree of God for the manifestation of his glory, some men and angels are predestined or foreordained to eternal life through Jesus Christ to the praise of his glorious grace. Others being left to act in their sin to their just condemnation to the praise of his glorious justice. Thank you. So uh, in this part of the chapter, in this uh, Excuse me. In this uh, specific paragraph, uh, the confession moves from speaking of God's decree in a broad sense to God's decree in a more specific sense. Uh, specifically, it is now addressing this concept of predestination or individual predestination, which is the idea that God, by virtue of his decree, has also decreed that some would receive eternal life through Jesus Christ. This teaching is easily accepted by many until you start to understand what it's actually teaching uh, from, the scope, from the scope of eternity, which, which what it's teaching is that peop, the people who God has ordained uh, to be saved is already set and fixed 
in God's decree. This is usually the part that people have a problem with. Uh, the natural man tends to push back on any idea that he isn't in ultimate control of his own destiny. And I think that's why people usually push back. Um, and this, this will forever trouble him until he learns to humble himself and submit to the majesty and the grandeur of God's sovereignty. And that's really the key um, problem there. The, the scriptures speak clearly on this issue. <clears throat> and on top of that, the scriptures... Um, there are multiple scriptures that speak on election. Uh, so it isn't that election or predestination is something made up by a specific uh, Christian tradition. This is something that is in scripture. The, the key issue is how are some of these traditions interpreting um, this, this doctrine. I'm going to run through some passages here. John 6, 64 says, But there are some of you who do not believe, for Jesus knew from the beginning who those who, who those were who did not believe and who it was who would betray him. And see, so you, you already see that there's foreknowledge there. Uh, John 10, 25, 26 says, The works that I do in my Father's name bear witness about me, but you do not believe because you are not part of my flock. You see that language of predetermination. John 17, 9 says, I am praying for them. I am not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. There is a specific uh, set of people that Christ has in mind. 1 Thessalonians 1, 4-5 says, For we know brothers... Uh, excuse me. For we know, brothers loved by God, that he has chosen you because our gospel came to you, not in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. Ephesians 1.5, he predestined us for adoption through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will. There's that predestination. And the reason for his predestination is simply... Uh, to be according to the purpose of his will. <clears throat> and then Romans eleven five through 6. So too, at the present time, there is a remnant chosen by grace. But if it is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace would no longer be grace. So those are just a few passages that speak on election when it comes to uh, people or men. <clears throat> We also read in the confession that it talked about elect angels. What's that about? Well, we see that in 1 Timothy 5.21. Can I get someone to read that? In the presence of God and of Christ Jesus and of the elect angels, I charge you to keep these rules without prejudgment, doing nothing from partiality. Thank you. And so we see that the purpose behind his decreeing of select people and angels are to the praise of his glorious grace. Now, in like manner, the confession also states that not only is there a decree that deals with election for some to receive eternal life, but that in his decree, there are many who are left to live in their sin leading to their condemnation, their just condemnation. And this is to say that God is very much, very much involved in the reprobation of some as he is in some for salvation. Nothing has slipped from his decree, not even the reprobate. 
However, what we ought to at least take away from this is that anyone receiving eternal condemnation, anyone going to hell, is receiving it justly. Is receiving it, as we spoke of earlier, uh, in a manner that uh, keeps him responsible for his own actions. Um, and this is something that God has not violated uh, in his uh, ordaining. <clears throat> um, in other words, God is not treating the condemned person unjustly by giving them their due sentence. And that's the key uh, thought there, their due sentence. And even so, we must never forget that even if God chooses to elect some and not others, he doesn't owe anyone salvation for any reason. He doesn't owe it to you. That, the term, the, when you think of owe, you think of debt, right? Oh, I've got to make sure that I meet this debt. I pay this off. God doesn't owe anyone anything for that matter, especially salvation. <clears throat> Don't let your modern ideas of equal opportunity... <laughs> And worldly notions of fairness distort your understanding of true justice. True justice, if you really think about it, would mean that we're all going to hell if God does not intervene or offer grace. We should be surprised that he would save anyone, even one person, and yet he does. He saves and as many of you that are here today, you're here today as a Christian because of his grace. He didn't look at you and say, oh, this is a special boy here, or this is a special young lady here. He chose you out of the purpose of his will, by grace alone, nothing that you could have ever done. And even as a good boy, you, you couldn't meet his holy standard. Uh, Romans 9 probably best speaks on that. Um, can I get someone to read Romans 9, 14 through 23? So again, the key, the key part in there is uh, sort of the end there. It says, what if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make his power known, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand for glory. Uh, this, this is just simply saying that all things are working for that end, for the glory of God. Uh, when... when uh, when, when, you go, when you go to court and standing before you, let's just say you're, you're, you're uh, 
you're just there sort of observing. And what you see before you is a criminal. <clears throat> now, you're not siding with punishing people for no reason. That's not your disposition, right? And I don't think God is super excited to go around punishing people. <laughs> but when you look in a court case and you see a criminal, a rapist, someone who's, who's done things that are horrible, imagine the judge just letting him slide. Oh, you know what? Grace for you. You'd probably scream and say, what, what's going on here? This guy needs to be uh, in jail or possibly uh, receiving the death sentence. Yet when you start to understand the justice of God, you, you start to side with him, and you start to see that the punishment of the wicked is just. It is, it is the correct uh, penalty in the way that God has decided to administer it um, it is, the, it is the best possible, wisest, and holiest uh, level of justice that maybe for us as creatures who, are, who, who have grown up in so much injustice, it's hard for us to really get a good grip on. But again, God needs no justification. I think it's plain to, know, it's plain to see that God, the way that he administers justice uh, is always right. Uh, let's go to uh, paragraph number four. Can I get a reader to read paragraph four? These angels and men thus predestined and foreordained are particularly and unchangeably designed, and their number so certain and definite that it cannot be either increased or diminished. Mm -hmm. Thank you. So this, this paragraph pretty much uh, comes across very in a manner that's very self-explanatory. Uh, here we see the immutability of God's decree. What he has chosen to happen will in fact happen, and nothing can change that. Uh, and this includes the number of the elect and those who are destined for destruction. Uh, real quickly, John 13, 18 says, I am not speaking of all of you. I know whom I have chosen, but the scripture will be fulfilled. And John 10, 29 says, My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hands. So this number is fixed. It's, it's, it's fixed because the decree is fixed. For the sake of time, I'm going to move along. <clears throat> this truth about the number being certain and definite should serve as an encouragement, if anything, uh, this encouragement that testifies to the firm and unchangeable character of God. And if you struggled with doubt, for example, about your salvation, this should confirm that if God started a work in you, he will bring it to completion. Your eternal destination is secure in God's decree. And so if you see evidence in your life that you're a Christian, you should be encouraged. You should be encouraged that if there's evidence there, God will make sure that you make it to the end. Moving along, let's look at paragraph 5. Can I get a reader for that one? God chose those human beings who are predestined to life before the foundation of the world in accordance with his eternal and immutable purpose. In the secret counsel of good pleasure and his will, God chose them in Christ for eternal glory solely out of his free grace and love without anything in the creature as a condition of Mm -hmm. 
So a lot of this we kind of already discussed. Um, we see the scripture state the following uh, in Ephesians 1, uh, 4 through 6. It says, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that he should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace. Um, <clears throat> and uh, Romans 9, verses 9 through 13, it says, For this is what the promise said, About this time next year I will return, and Sarah shall have a son. And not only so, but also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born and had done nothing either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls, she was told that the older will serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. So this verse is a good picture of what God has been in the business of doing since the beginning. Yet if you find yourself counted among the elect, if you see fruit that you're a Christian, you should be overwhelmed by God's goodness towards you and live a life of ongoing praise that he would even be mindful of you. And, and having that in mind should cause worship in you. It should be uh, a motivation uh, for when we get into our worship service to really rejoice and sing to the Lord that God would be mindful of you. And that's really the, uh, the bottom line of that, that paragraph. <clears throat> Can I get a reader for paragraph six? <clears throat> Amen. And so in this paragraph, you see a few points here, right? You see the elect are appointed to glory. You see the decree of election is executed by foreordained means. It simply means that, um, yes, God preordained what's going to happen to you in the future. But guess what? He also preordained every step of the way as well. He also preordained the means in which would... Uh, be a part of that process, right? All the elements in between, in other words. Uh, <clears throat> he uh, decrees uh, his election and executes it by foreordained means. Um, and, and you see that, that he has, by the eternal and completely free purpose of his will, foreordained all the means. God, God's will is eternal and, almost, and, and most free. This is true of both his decrees but he's also free in how he carries it out as well. <clears throat> God executes or carries out his decrees using foreordained means, and it's important that we understand that God does not merely decree or foreordain things without carrying that plan out. And sometimes if we don't get that understanding correctly, uh, we start to become, in a sense, paralyzed 
uh, because here's an example. When we think about evangelism, for example, you know, you can fall into the fallacy of thinking that, well, God ordains, he's going to pick who's going to heaven, so what's the point of me going out there and evangelizing? Well, God may have elected that person out there, but he's also elected you to go out there and carry that message to him or her, and God also ordained in, in, in his decree that as you speak the gospel to them, that that message will become effectual in their heart. Now, in some cases, he may decree that you go preach the gospel, and it is not effectual in their heart unto salvation. But still, God used you to fulfill his eternal purposes. So don't get, carried, don't get caught up in just looking at the end results. God also ordained every step of the way. And this is why it's important to consider your own sanctification. It's also important to not sit around and say, well, I don't need to go to church because if God elected me, I'm good here at home. No, if God elected you, if you're counted among the elect, he also elected you to go to church. He also elected you to sit there and listen to the message. He also elected you to grow in your faith. And if you see those things not happening in your life, chances are you're probably not elect. You're probably not a Christian if you're not fellowshipping with other Christians and loving his word and growing in, in grace and maturity. All those things are important. Yes? That, that term, then you're not elect, because um, I don't see where that's necessarily useful, but sure. I can see that, um, that I need to, look, to go to him, Yes. that if I'm not seeing those in my life, that I need to make sure that I take that to him. Yes, because, amen. Because that election decision isn't mine. That, that's but, correct. But going to him is the right response when we're, when we're concerned about where we are. That's correct. Yeah, in, in other words, uh, when I say that chances are you're possibly not elect, you're right about that, where you, you don't really have a say in whether you're elect or not. But here's what, what you don't have a right to do. If you're not living according to God's words, if you're not pursuing holiness, you don't have a right to count yourself among the, the many. So you're essentially talking Second Peter chapter 1. That's right. That, that's right. There is, a, there is a, a requirement for the Christian to seek after this assurance of faith. Now, this doesn't mean at a time of brokenness, right, that you're, you're broken in your sin, you're feeling insecure, or any kind of doubts that may occur in your mind or in your heart. This doesn't mean that all those moments are moments where you need to tell yourself that you're not elect. What, but what, 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 it is, what is important is that you don't fool yourself. And don't think that uh, you have a right to call yourself a Christian if, in fact, you're not um, bearing any fruit. And we see this clearly taught in Scripture. <clears throat> the goal of this chapter is actually not to discourage you upon your election. It's actually to encourage your election, to pursue, uh, excuse me, uh, let me take that back, to encourage your assurance in that election. That's what I mean to say. Uh, and it is the duty of the Christian to make your election sure, uh, to, to test and see if you're truly uh, in the faith. When you see these fruits, you should rejoice that God will promise that he will take you to the end, that he will assure the salvation. Um, and again, if you have any questions about that, feel free to ask me. We can discuss it more. Um, because we're limited in time, you know, we, it's hard for me to consider all possible scenarios. Um, but... But yeah, think about that.
Uh, moving on, let's go to the last uh, paragraph here. Can someone read the last paragraph? So again, here you kind of, you, you get this sort of thesis statement in the end of what the purpose of uh, this doctrine is, at least on a practical level, to the, to the Christian. Um, <clears throat> I, I think of, when I think about all of, all that encompasses the doctrine of God's decree, I think of Romans 11.33 where it says, Oh, the depth and the riches and the wisdom and knowledge of God, how unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. Um, you know, it, it's easy to get caught up with, with uh, deep levels of trying to figure out um, God's secret will, and it, it, it can cause some unnecessary damage because we have to leave room for divine mystery. But what we do know clearly in Scripture is that we are called to uh, follow the gospel, to uh, believe it by faith, to live in light of the gospel, to pursue holiness. And these are things that help us to find comfort in the doctrine of God's decree and in um, questions about election and, and that sort of thing. <clears throat> uh, a, a quote from A.A. A. Hodge. He says, This section teaches that the high mystery of predestination is to be handled with special prudence and care. This necessity arises from the fact that it is often abused and that its proper use of the highest, of the highest degree uh, important. In other words, A.A. <clears throat> Hodge saw it as the highest degree of importance. And we should ask ourselves, if this, if this is a doctrine that needs to be treated with so much care, why is it even important to discuss we see from the confession itself that it's important because of what it says in the middle of that last paragraph, that men attending the will of God revealed in his word and yielding obedience thereunto may from the certainty of their effectual vocation be assured of their eternal election. Again, this is clearly saying that those who follow the word, those who are responsive to the world, who live in light of the gospel, those are the people who can look at their lives and from certainty, with certainty, can, can place their trust in this, this, that they are numbered among the elect. And so those are, that's the purpose of this, this doctrine and how it applies to you uh, personally. Uh, I'm going to go ahead and close with that. <clears throat> and um, yeah, if, if you, again, if you have any questions regarding this, this uh, doctrine, I know it can be a bit complicated. Um, it it can be confusing in some parts, um, but always remember that its, its purpose is always to serve for our uh, assurance in, in salvation. Let me go ahead and pray, and then we'll close out. Our Father, we thank you for revealing to us this divine mystery of your decree. We confess our limitations in fully understanding every level of it, yet we know that there is mystery uh, being that 
there are real levels to your secret will. However, we're thankful to have grasped some. And in what we do know, we are made glad. And your grace is revealed through it. And so, Father, may it always serve as a strength to our soul and not the opposite. That it would strengthen our soul that what you've promised in your gospel will, without a doubt, be completed in us. Um, we, we thank you that we can trust in your unchangeable decree. For we pray all this in your son's name. Amen. Amen.